economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gordney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gordney Professor of Economic Education and Research. Finally, our graduate assistant-elect, Lawson Mellon. All right. Well, we thought uh, it was relevant today to talk about the Supreme Court of the United States, affectionately known as SCOTUS. They've been bringing some new things down the, the pipeline and so we've had uh, New York with some guns uh, regulation that has some precedent for other states. We have Roe v. Wade and just a number of things coming down the pipeline. So, Peter, you want to lead us off with something? Yeah, sure. So uh, I think there's a few different directions we can go. We can talk about either individual cases and we could do both of these things. We can talk about individual cases, but I'm also interested in talking about the overarching philosophy behind these decisions. And then lastly, like the narrative that exists now around the collection of decisions over the past couple of weeks. You know, I like the idea of doing the overarching thing first, because I think that's the direction of things. And, and then since people have been battering around the issues, we could get lost in the weeds real quick. So yeah. that sounds good to me. So since you said that, I'll give you the specific cases. No, I, <laughs> I, I am going to say the, the, the specific cases that we'll probably focus on. But yeah, I'm fine with returning to the overarching. So we had uh, the case of Bruin, uh, which was the New York gun laws case, uh, which, you know, the law at the time basically said you can have a pistol. You just can't walk outside your house with it. Uh, we had the Dobbs ruling, which was surrounding Roe versus Wade, obviously the biggest one. Uh, in fact, it wasn't initially about Roe versus Wade, but became about that. And then we had the Kennedy versus the Dremerton School District, which was uh, the coach who was praying on the field. At this point, you know, Dr. Clark mentioned before we started talking, we haven't yet had the EPA ruling at the point of recording this podcast. I'm sure listeners, you'll have it by the time we release this podcast. But just so you know, that's not why we're not talking about it. So. I guess I'll take one stab and let Justin come in with some of his philosophical stuff. But uh, the overarching thing that I see is a movement back to uh, the federal government not intervening in what states want to do that might be differently. So if we take the, uh, the gun ruling in, in New York, it was the states trying to usurp the Second Amendment and the 14th Amendment. So there we had the Constitution said you got the right to bear arms and the states were being a little overzealous on saying, no, you can only you you only have the right to bear arms in certain cases or if you prove to the state certain ways. So there it was constitutionally related. Uh, Of course, the Roe v. Wade would uh, not have a one size fits all throughout all of the states to let the states determine that. Praying on the field, separation of church and state and do people have individual freedom to express themselves so I feel like the overarching theme is to the court starting to bring March stuff back to allowing the states to have uh, more power and not a one size fits all for the United States. Uh, Justin, you got things to add there? Um, I, I think that would be the uh, sympathetic reading of, you know, if you wanted to say, here's a coherent thread from a sympathetic perspective that ties these decisions together. It's to um, 
strongly assert what the Constitution says when the Constitution does say something and to delegate the power back to the states in cases where the Constitution doesn't say something, right? So uh, like you pointed out in the, um, uh, in the New York gun case, uh, there is an explicit right to bear arms and not only an explicit right to bear arms, but an explicit commandment that the right to bear arms shall not be infringed um, in the constitution, right? So that was the reason why they, um, you know, they uh, overturned the, the New York law. And then in the abortion, um, the Dobbs case, in Roe, they kind of, and we covered this in a previous podcast, you know, Peter mentioned um, in a previous podcast that this, this right to an abortion was found in the penumbras of the Constitution, like in the shadows of the Constitution. And everybody actually hated Roe, even people who wanted to um, establish a right to an abortion in federal law. But the fact was there wasn't, there is no mention of abortion in the Constitution. There is no federal right to an abortion. And that's what um, the justices used to overturn Roe. They said, since this isn't guaranteed in the letter of the Constitution, this goes back to the states. And so that does mean that in some states, abortion is going to be illegal. And it means in some states, abortion is going to be legal still. Um, but in both cases, it's trying to look at the letter of the Constitution um, and, uh, and enforce those things which the Constitution gives the federal government authority to do and um, kick back to the states in cases where it doesn't. And I think Peter probably disagrees with me here. So, yeah, I think I disagree. Well, I, I, I agree with you that that's probably the philosophy I, I will say. So uh, to make myself clear, and also, by the way, I, I forgot one case, the main case about uh, school districts funding religious schools. Uh, if there's going to be uh, no public schools in the area was another one, but we, we can come back to that. Yeah, so I, I think the modern, we'll get, say, conservative justice philosophy, uh, which kind of goes into Scalia, is basically uh, like a little bit self-contradictory. And they'll probably, like, a supporter would probably disagree. But so my problem with the framing that this was a consistent, you know, back to the states thing is actually uh, the New York decision was trampling states' rights, or at least cities' rights, or the rights of states to allow cities to make you know, laws about uh, guns. And actually, uh, to a certain extent, uh, we had the, the federal government saying, well, in Maine, if you're going to support some schools, you have to support other schools. And so this is, again, the federal government telling the state government what, what has to be done. Uh, whereas with the abortion ruling, the government was saying, well, the federal government can't make this decision, at least not on the, at least not on the grounds that we've said uh, previously. Uh, and I, I do think this is like fundamentally inconsistent. Uh, and I think that there's a bad argument for it's inconsistent. The bad argument is, well, state government's bad in this decision, but good in this decision. Why? Like, that's the bad version of the argument, right? The good version of the argument is, uh, I don't, th I think the people who say they're orig originalists are wrong. I think originally, uh, the Bill of Rights was applied to the federal government, not to the state government. I don't think that uh, when the Bill of Rights was written, it meant that uh, Kansas must uphold the rights to free speech or the right to bear arms. I think it meant that the federal government is not allowed to interfere with those things. And so uh, I like that New Yorkers can carry their guns outside of their house now, but ultimately I disagree with that decision by the Supreme Court. I would rather the Supreme Court have upheld New York's right because I think the decentralized aspect of New York's laws is more important than uh, the individual case there. I would prefer that if the Supreme Court held, uh, you know, states' rights to be a little bit higher than they are. 
Can I press back on you a little bit there? Yeah, me too. Because I, because I, I actually think your position is consistent. But note that um, for the federal government, for the Supreme Court to actually apply your criteria, don't we have to go all the way back to like Marbury versus Madison? Yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. Supreme, okay. the Supreme Court disappears, right? Like right. That, that, okay. that. So, so that's uh, well, no, that's not exactly true. There are cases like uh, interstate conflicts where the Supreme Court uh, probably it's had its legitimate original place, but the the place of the Supreme Court was not originally, by the way, again, to the originals, was not originally to be the final word on the Constitution. That was decided after the Supreme Court was founded. By definition, the original intention of the Supreme Court had nothing to do with, well, we are going to be the final word on the Constitution. And nowhere was that written uh, when the Supreme Court was created. Uh, That was decided literally later. Uh, So yes, I think that that means our Supreme Court looks much different than it actually does today. Uh, But I think it would be better. Um, I, I recognize that there are trade-offs here, but I, I see the trade-offs as being better rather. I guess my pushback would be maybe similar to what Justin was bringing up, um, was just that we have to have kind of a baseline and it's so explicit in the second amendment. And then furthermore, in the 14th amendment, which I had to do a little brushing up on this, so I'm not an expert, but basically that we all have those equal rights around the whole country. Uh, so that kind of bolsters here. We've got it explicitly said that you've got the right to bear arms. So let's have this be our baseline. And then otherwise states, you know, you're free to do it. Whereas when we get into, uh, let's say Roe v. Wade, the federal um, government uh, said states, you all have to look the same. And then after further inspection, we're like, ah, it got overturned because it didn't. The, the, the Constitution Bill of Rights did not explicitly say that they had the right to do it. So I I see it as being consistent from a constitutional perspective. My problem with the 14th Amendment is that it can mean everything and nothing at the same time, right? Uh, What I take the 14th Amendment to be saying is that uh, you have the rights to, you know, the other rights guaranteed, uh, natural rights guaranteed by God. Uh, And if you have a problem with how you're treating, go take it up with your local government. Uh, That's how I see the 14th Amendment saying that. I don't see the 14th Amendment saying you get to have all the same things as everybody in every state, uh, which is basically how it's interpreted now is anytime there's a law that someone really likes in one place and it's not in the other place or a lack of a law. And they say, hey, I would really like that law or I would really like that lack of law. I don't have it. Therefore, the 14th Amendment is being violated. I think that basically the modern application of the 14th Amendment totally dissolves federalism especially the way that we talk about rights in the modern day, but also like a somewhat coherent, uh, you know, version or definition of rights with the 14th Amendment also dissolves federalism. I don't think that you can say in this state you have a right to this specific medical procedure and this state say that you don't have the right to medical procedure and uphold equal protection uh, as it's construed now. So I don't know what you think about that. Uh, There's a part of me that wants... To agree with you, and, and I think I do fundamentally, is that maybe <clears throat> having the full state's rights, because let's just kind of, for our listeners, go over federalism again, that we've got the ability now to have multiple experiments going on in different states. Human beings are very diverse. We have different preferences. When we go to Walmart, I buy something different than what Peter does. He likes different food, different bundles of goods come in our shopping carts, right, according to our preferences. And so the idea of federalism is that each state can bundle together different 
rights, like uh, whether it's abortion or whether it's guns or whether it's, you know, all kinds of things, the uh, the amount of money spent on roads and schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of this, this bundle of public goods. And so federalism is our best shot to overcome the collective action problem of being able to shop around to the state that meets my preferences the best. Mm -hmm. And so I think when a state passes something, let's say New York with this gun law, if, if a lot of people feel strongly about it, instead of those people suing the state or maybe after they would have lost, they'd leave the state, right? And, then, and, and so they wanna live in a state where uh, they can carry and conceal anywhere they go. And so they move and, and in today's day of mobility, that's not a, that's not all bad. Well, and, and I, I'll say, I'm sorry, Justin, I know you have something. I just want to jump in. The, the reason I prefer this federalist option of, of voting with your feet is because I think it's more powerful than the option of voting with your ballot. I trust people leaving their home more than I trust people, uh, more than I trust politicians electing the right Supreme Court justices. And so I would rather the decision of leaving the home take precedence over the Supreme Court because I trust the people leaving that I trust that function more than the other one. Justin, sorry. Uh, yeah, so I, I actually, you know, I'm sympathetic to Peter's view, um, which let's let's say we have three views here. Right. One is that the, the Constitution binds the federal government and only binds the federal government. Right. And I take it that's the view that Peter's um, pretty, pretty, clo pretty here, close right? to it, at least. Yeah. I yeah, think the, the 14th um, Amendment does provide a little bit of scope outside of that, but I, I think the ground is much smaller than people say, but yeah. The, another view is, and this is the view of, you know, like judicial activism is no, 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 the, the constitution can bind all the states and it can bind, you know, we can interpret the commerce clause as widely as we want. Yeah. And um, the federal government has jurisdiction, complete jurisdiction over the states, right? Um, and a third view, which I take it is the one that we kind of outlined a little bit earlier, is something like the federal government, uh, the Constitution binds the federal government, but it also binds the states in those specific areas of the Bill of Rights where specific rights are mentioned. Right. right? And I think that whether or not you uh, we disagree about whether or not the first of those things you know, the, where the, the federal government only binds the federal government or the federal government binds the federal government and the states, but only it only binds the states in those areas where those rights are specifically mentioned. To me, both of those seem better than this third alternative yes. where the federal government can just do whatever it wants. Yeah, I agree. And so, it, and so insofar as this has been a move from that third area back to at least the second, I'm supportive of it. Um, yeah, even though I, I I'm, I'm sympathetic with the argument that, uh, no, 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 it, it should still be, uh, we should still have less federal overreach. Yeah, yeah. Insofar as it is a move away, I agree, even yeah. though I think there's certain steps being taken that are not moves away right. and are continuations. All right, well, this looks like a good spot for a break. And uh, after we come back, we'll, we'll weave in some faith components and uh, also uh, look a little more details into some of these cases. We'll be back in just a bit. The Gordon Institute is now proud to offer a microeconomics course for high school students. This course will count as college credit at Ottawa University and may, depending on your high school, count towards high school credits as well. For more information on that, you can visit our page on the Ottawa University website. So it's ottawa.edu for our website. And if you scroll down, you'll see University Institutes and the Gordon Institute. Our cost for that is $200 as of now and it runs continuously.
By 2030, the Gordy Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for the knowledge, contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in faith and flourishing and economic freedom and justice. We have exciting new things going on like PPE League, philosophy, politics, and economics. Schools compete in various competitions regarding those things. We have high school events like our everyday economics. If you have students or people that would be interested in learning this type of thing, make sure you check out our website at gortoninstitute.org. All right, so we're back. So I thought we'd uh, tackle the faith, some uh, faith issues that are coming out from the Supreme Court ruling. Peter, do you want to expand a little bit on this? What was it, praying on the field and some other things? Yeah, so we had two courses, one out of Maine and then one out of, I believe it was Texas, the school district of Dremerton. And so uh, the two decisions were first Maine. Uh, this is a decision that's kind of misunderstood by a lot of people. So in Maine, there are places uh, without coverage by public schools. There are sections of the state that don't have adequate access uh, to a nearby school. And in those areas, uh, people are given vouchers to attend schools of their choice. And so uh, this isn't uh, actually a statewide thing that everybody can do. This is in, in particular areas. And the court case was about whether or not you could apply those vouchers to religious schools. And the Supreme Court said, yes, if you can take that money from the government and go to a private non-religious school, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to take it to a private religious school. If you're making people go put their money somewhere uh, with this voucher, they should be able to choose where. And so that was the case in Maine. And then in Kennedy versus Dremerton, we had uh, a coach who was fired for uh, after every game, he would pray on the 50 yard line uh, with his players around. He didn't force his players to pray. He just prayed with them around. Uh, and the school district tried to get rid of him. He sued to get his job back. And the Supreme Court decided, first off, that you can apply those, those vouchers to religious schools in Maine, and you can't fire the coach for praying around his players in Texas. And so two wins for, we would say, or, or I would say two wins for religious liberty and the ability to exercise your faith in the public square. Yeah, does the does the praying on the field, does that fall under a freedom of speech type of area? Is that um, where the courts were coming or was it more of the uh, separation and freedom to practice religion? Well, that uh, that's all First Amendment, right? So that's all under the First Amendment. So it was a, a First Amendment based decision. But yeah, uh, essentially what the court said is a high school football coach, believe it or not, praying on a field does not mean he's establishing a state religion. Newsflash, everyone. Uh, that a high school coach is allowed to say words on a field. Uh, and, you know, it, again, that we, we should keep in mind, he's not making his players pray. He's not saying that to start on this team, you have to pray with me. He's saying, we're all together at the field. I'm going to pray. And, you know, I, it's, I, I'm not sure if there was controversy with the players or if it was, was the school district that went after him. Justin, I don't know if you have a thoughts or anything you know about the decision that I missed. No, I, I do know that um, in most Supreme Court cases, like um, 
what is couched as something that happens purely privately is usually kind of set up in a way. And I know that like the coach had called the media organizations and stuff and said, I'm going to do this. Um, you can come cover it. And then he was fired for it. Um, so it, it does seem like there was a bit of theater involved there, but you, okay. you're right. The, the decision was that he was ex, he was praying in a private capacity, right. As a private citizen, he was doing it and he wasn't doing it, you know, not forcing his players to, uh, to do it with him, which I think was, was very important um, to the case. Um, I, and then you said, you know, a high school football coach praying at the 50 yard line, isn't trying to establish a state religion that I don't know about. I, I've <laughs> played for a lot of football coaches and a lot of high school football coaches. How are you? You played high school football, Peter. And oh, that's I, right. We had a big football story I, last week. <laughs> I never met a high school football coach who wasn't trying to establish a state religion. Whatever I said. So, uh, yeah, Good that point. would be my. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, didn't think I, I, I think I agree with everything that you said. Um, there was uh, somewhat unrelated but since i get to mention milton friedman i will uh so lawson and some other students uh, we went on a uh, kind of a retreat to milton friedman's summer home and in vermont this got brought up with the school there was a private school i don't remember if it was um, religious based or not a sense that it was but this was vermont not maine but it was a similar thing that there wasn't enough schools around and that they they did the same system so that is certainly something that's active in uh, at least the the rural areas up in uh, the Northeast. So, yeah. And school choice is becoming increasingly popular and listeners, if you don't follow, uh, there's a, a person who works on this Corey D'Angelis, uh, is probably the world's biggest proponent of school choice. And I, I don't usually plug people on our podcast, but I think he's done so much on the issue that it would be an injustice not to mention his name. Um, he, he's been focusing a lot on this idea of school choice and it's gaining popularity around the country, uh, because the data is actually very clear. The funny thing about, you know, a lot of these decisions lately is, uh, allowing for school choice, as far as the numbers show us, actually increases the revenue of public schools because there's less resources being poured into uh, kind of dealing with the the, the tougher students, uh, you know, along with all the mm. other students. So it actually increases the revenue of public Gosh, schools. I've never heard that argument. That makes sense. Uh, so it's, it's better uh, for a, a lot of the things in the public schools, maybe not every party in the public schools, teachers unions, for example, are opposed to it. Uh, it also increases the amount of choice that uh, lower income people have. Uh, and lastly, uh, it gives some taxpayers some of their dollars back more directly. Uh, and so because of the decrease in waste, it's something that benefits almost everybody. So I was happy to see the decision, even though I do like the idea of uh, it's the states having more control over their policies and that sort of thing. Uh, if we're going to live in this world where uh, we look at the results of the decision, I liked the, the results. So allowing... Uh school choice would lead to more people like getting to the equilibrium of students in each school. I think everyone would be a little bit more happier in that scenario because everyone's getting what they want, where they want to go without someone forcing them to do so. Yeah. And, and one, th one thing that people have a, a fear about is, well, you know, what if this ultimately would lead to uh, lower revenue for schools and there was less money for like poor schools and people who didn't have like the ability to drive somewhere else, you know, their school gets gutted. Uh, but we, what we find, if you look again, studies in Baltimore uh, show that there's no relationship between the amounts of funding and outcomes. And so people's math scores don't improve when you fund schools more, public schools more. Uh, people's graduation rates don't improve more. Probably what's happening is all that funding is being absorbed by teachers unions and not really going to students at all. Uh, so it, 
unless you're a member of a teacher's union, uh, apologize as listeners, if you are, uh, this is good for you. So <laughs> one of the things that, uh, you know, you'll find Corey DeAngelis saying a lot is something like allowing families to shop at uh, Kroger doesn't take money away from Walmart. Um, which is the argument that you find um, from the public from the teachers unions, essentially, right? That this takes money away from um, from public schools. And what I think he's trying to show there is we need to talk about who who these funds really belong to, right? Yeah. These um, these funds should belong to um, the citizenry who are paying these taxes, and they should be able to you know, pay for the education they want for their children. And so some of the some of the reactions that you've seen on Twitter are things that, you know, a lot of like CNN blue check saying things like this is Wajahat Ali saying private Islamic schools and Jewish schools should open up all over Maine. The state has to fund you now. So take advantage of it. Move your communities there as well. Let's see what the Supreme Court says. It's like, yes, you sh- you should do that. That would be good. Uh, <laughs> that's that's you know, a right that you have to do. Yeah, if yeah that, if that works for you. And, and I think a lot of- Go ahead, no, go ahead, Justin. No, no. There's been a lot of reactions to this saying that, um, um, saying things like, oh yeah, well, if you agree to that, you must also think X. And, you know, it's been like, yes, I, I also think X. Uh, <laughs> That's consistent and that's what I think. So, um. yeah. And and I think another big piece of this, and I I think, you know, there's room for a whole nother podcast on separation of church and state, which we talked about, I I think we're going to do, but like, there is this extent to where it's like, do we really believe that uh, there's not a prevailing ideology in public schools that's taught? Uh, And you, that doesn't have to be a religion, uh, at least in the traditional sense, but let's not pretend like we don't teach values to our kids in schools. Uh, and why is it that we privilege one set of values over any other set of values? No, I, I would be happy for there to be an Islamic school, a Jewish school in you know different states, because I don't think that those are any worse than the prevailing ideology that's taught most schools, right? Like that, it doesn't bother me. In fact, I like the competition between the ideologies and the schools rather than having our standard ideology. And, and the way the vouchers work, let's, uh, I guess, remind, there is a, a certain set of standards that are maintained for better or for worse sometimes but but nonetheless um there's there's some standards that remain with these charter type schools and voucher systems it's not uh, 100% uh independent and so they they only speak uh um a, lang- a certain language and they only learn cultural traditions of their own you know what i'm saying i, it, I guess i want to remind you're, you're right it, sh- it should be that but it's not you're right Russ. <laughs> that, that's my preferred role but We'll get there. Someday. That's right. I, I was I was <laughs> questioning whether no, no, no. R- R- Russ, Russ is right. It's, yeah. it, it's not like you can just do whatever you want. Yeah, uh, necessarily. Yeah. Um, All right. So, Justin, you had some other reactions to maybe some of the other cases you wanted to cover, too. Oh, yeah. The reactions to the Dobbs case, which is uh, overturning for Obi Wade, has been um, flabbergasting because, uh, you know, there were <laughs> political cart. I saw a political cartoon where. Uh, one had a Supreme Court justice executing um, the Statue of Liberty from behind uh, with the Statue of Liberty being pregnant uh, as if the uh, ruling meant you had to kill uh, pregnant women. Another had the Statue of Liberty walking back to France and it said, you know, the Statue of Liberty has been seen walking back to France, which is really uh, hilarious because um, the the case at issue in uh, in the Dobbs case was a Mississippi 
clinic that, uh, or a Mississippi law that said that you can't perform abortions after 15 weeks, right? And that's what uh, was challenged, the state law. Um, but France caps abortions, you can't have them after 14 weeks. So um, there, and in fact, most of continental Europe is um, far, far stricter than the United States was. The United States had federally the, the most permissive abortion policy, you know, in the free world, essentially. So this idea um, that somehow the United States by itself is now going back to the strictest abortion laws in the world just isn't, isn't true. Um, and some states will continue to have the most permissive abortion laws in the world, right? I yes. mean, this is the other way to look at it is that uh, since France is not much bigger than some of our, uh, our states, then here we have states that'll be operating in a much more permissive way than what most of continental Europe is. Yeah, so I, I wanted to tack onto this. A great example for listeners at home because it's so short, Australia. Uh, it's another one that you, uh, I'm sure people think of, oh, in civilized Australia, they must have very uh, free abortion laws. There's only one, one province or a state, a state or territory is what they call them. There's only one state or territory in Australia that allows abortion for the full term. Every other state, the next uh, lowest one is Tasmania with 16 weeks. And then every other state, it's 20 weeks plus when the abortion cutoff begins. And so the U.S. will have far more, uh, probably even proportionally, uh, permissive abortion laws than Australia, for example. Uh, and yet I imagine uh, uh, people are probably not railing against Australia's abortion laws right now. And by the way, the, the one place where you are allowed to get unlimited uh, abortion in Australia up to you know, term, uh, you have to have it done by a medical doctor, uh, which many places in the U.S. don't even require like a medical doctor to be present, uh, depending on the state laws. And so, yeah, the, the U.S. by far and away, along with Canada it, until recently, until the, until the Supreme Court's decision, the most permissive abortion laws. One, uh, oh, go ahead, Russ. Oh, I was just going to comment that the, the other thing that this does from kind of an overarching view is it allows the private sector to intervene where they think there's an injustice. So if there's uh, young mothers that uh, they think they feel should have the right to an abortion, um, you've heard of people offering services to drive them to a state where they could have it or other things. But these are my point is that it allows private institutions to evolve, to meet needs where there's perceived injustices. Um, and so I think we'll see that private sector emerge in that way, uh, even with with this decision. I also wanted to point out an, another, by the way, so I, I, my cards are on the table. I have no mind, no problem saying I'm supportive of the Supreme Court decision here. And so I more than want to say that one other argument that really uh, gets me every time I read it, I almost respond every time, which is tough nowadays, because I really desensitize myself to social media nonsense. But there is this kind of line of arguments that go something like this. Abortion laws do not stop abortion, first off, and it will make abortion very unsafe. And so this doesn't appeal to me because as an economist, I think, well, when people when something is unsafe, people do it less because they're not dumb. Right. There are some people who are what we call on the margin. On the margin means you're barely in the camp of making the decision. And when you're barely in the camp of making the decision and something changes to make that decision worse for you, you don't do the decision. So you can't say simultaneously oh, anti-abortion laws don't prevent abortion and anti-abortion laws make abortion less safe because those things are logically contradictory. 
you have to take one or the other. Either abortion laws do effectively stop some abortions or they're, they're not adding any particular barriers to abortion. Uh, it must be that the laws actually make uh, abortion cheaper somehow, right? Like that, that's a, a, a possible scenario we imagine, but you can't have both. Uh, so that's the other frustration that I see all the time on social media. It's obviously not true to economists out there. Demand curve slope down. When something <laughs> becomes more expensive, you do it less. It's really not that hard math. Yeah. Yeah. Another uh, another great reaction I saw was uh, people saying, well, in states where abortion is illegal, the father should financially be on the hook since the moment of conception. Yeah. Like, Congratulations. Great. You you just invented child support, which we already <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah. And by the way, I'm all in favor of uh, making child support uh, better enforced. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I fully yeah. agree with that. If, no, if you're sure. the father, uh, you should take, in fact, I think even in an abortion world, uh, that's 100% true, uh, that it's still on the father, whether or not the woman gets the abortion, because if that's not the case, then you create this real world where the father has an incentive to like force the abortion, right? Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I agree with you, Justin. That's like uh, your terms are acceptable, right? That's what yeah, you're saying, exactly. So. <laughs> uh, so the the one decision that we haven't talked about in detail uh, is the Bruin, the gun decision in New York, and I kind of you know already gave my two bits on like judicial philosophy. But what do we think just in terms of the decision itself, its impact, uh, you know, New York gun control, all these things. Well, I think it was a, a win for New Yorkers um, in the sense of you've got areas of New York that have high crime and other things. And so I guess anti-gun people would say, well, that that's a bad move. That's going to put more guns on the streets or something. But uh, it seems like there's plenty of uh, self-defense and also good Samaritans that have helped stop crimes with with more uh, guns available. So. I guess that's going to be an empirical question, right? I mean, I think we have maybe a, uh, an interesting situation with the policy change that we can see um, if more people carrying concealed guns in New York ends up reducing crime or increasing crime. I was thinking the same thing that the next couple of years, kind of a study could be looked into there to where you can start to evaluate that a little more in detail. Yeah. What about another policy that increases crime, though? Wouldn't that kind of muddy the results? Well, we always face that problem, yeah, to disentangle multiple things going on. Um, and that's, I guess, one area we didn't talk about today that we talked about pre-podcast was whether we were going to bring up the whole Roe v. Wade, if that decreased crime or not, uh, then we might save that for, for another time um, since we're starting to near the end. Any other final, final words for this episode? Yeah, well, I, I mean, my two cents on the, the gun control thing is, uh, like I said, uh, I basically wish that we lived in a world where the states had more power, because I, I actually think that the cost of moving is not as high as people generally say it is. You know, I'm reading a book about like a preacher who uh, moved from like northeast uh, United States to Kansas using a horse and carriage. So, uh, you know, poverty and um, moving. Uh, I mean, it's certainly harder for poor people to move, but it's it's not impossible by any means. Uh, and I like the freedom of movement because that's a more individual power than freedom of just voting and hoping that your vote makes a difference, which it never does. Yeah. Um, but and, and I, I would like to live in a world where people could voluntarily get together with a group of other people and ban guns in their neighborhood or, you know, in the little district that they're living in. I, I have no problem with a world like that. I'd be curious to see if it would be a more or less violent world, because I actually don't feel like I know the answer to that. 
But I, I do appreciate that now some people in New York who are, it was basically illegal to, for them to walk out of their apartment and protect themselves. I do appreciate that some of those people can now protect themselves. And uh, certainly that benefit does not go unnoticed. Justin, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, um, it was kind of related to what you said about abortions too, because sometimes you find a similar argument about guns that uh, people will say, well, um, bad people will carry guns anyway. Um, Therefore, you know, the uh, the gun laws, the, this um, banning guns doesn't matter or something like that. Right. Um, yeah. And and I think sometimes that argument gets uh, I think you can consistently say that, no, a lot of the people who we don't want to have guns, but have guns anyway, those people aren't on the margin. Right. So they're not dissuaded by um, by having their uh having guns be illegal. And that is why in, uh, you know, Chicago, in New York, in areas where there is high, high gun crime, despite, um, despite strict gun laws, it's because the people who want to have guns aren't on the margin. So they just can't be influenced. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that the reason it's, it's not contradictory is because a person who is anti-abortion is happy with anybody on the margin, changing their minds. Uh, whereas uh, when it's gun control, we're interested in specific people uh, changing their minds. And like you mentioned, uh, people who are involved in organized crime or you know, disorganized crime, for that matter, uh, maybe they're not the ones on the margin. Uh, I think that case could be made. So, yeah. All right. Well, this looks like a good place to wrap. Uh, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. Five-star rating helps other people find us and please pass this podcast along to friends and family or those other people that you think might like it. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.